You're listening to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This is Eugene Hernandez, Deputy Director here at Film at Lincoln Center. Thank you to all of you who listened to our podcast during the 57th New York Film Festival. We had daily podcasts featuring the filmmakers behind The Irishman, Marriage Story, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Painting Glory, Uncut Gems, and so much more. We also featured extensive talks about two favorites from this year's festival that are playing now at Film at Lincoln Center, Bong Joon-ho's Parasite and Navad Lapid's Synonyms. Today on our weekly podcast, we've got a special NYFF live conversation presented by the Writers Guild of America East. At the festival, five screenwriters joined us for a conversation about writing New York City, both on the page and how it goes beyond the quintessential urban landscape. The conversation was moderated by New York filmmaker Paul Schrader and included panelists J.C. Chandor, Jeffrey Fletcher, Gillian Robespierre, and Steve Zalian. The group talked about the screenwriting process and capturing New York City in their films, including The Irishman, Taxi Driver, Precious, Obvious Child, and Margin Call. Let's go to that panel from the 57th New York Film Festival now. I've been trying to recommend this film to someone. And I finally got online. There's probably somebody here in this audience that knows it, but there could very well not be. A film by Christoph Zanussi from the 60s. The Illumination, that's what it's called. Brilliant film, see that film. Uh, okay, uh, uh, there's a, a lot of panelists and not that much time. Uh, I'm gonna start by essentially asking everyone the same question and uh, seeing, uh, you, you can either answer the question or you can do like they do on TV and make up your own question and answer that. <laughs> um, but when I uh, was doing American Gigolo in Los Angeles in 79, I was trying to figure out, you know, how do I shoot Los Angeles? And Los Angeles, probably second only to New York, is the most photographed, you know, film city in the world. And uh, I said, you know, what, what can you do? What can you do? Hello, hello? I mean, what can you do to make this your Los Angeles? What can you do to make it come alive? And, uh, and I, I faced a uh, similar thing when I came to do my first film in New York as a director, a light sleeper. And, uh, but I'm not going to tell you what I came up with. I'm going to just pass this question on. So you now, as writers, sometimes directors, you're looking at New York City a city where you can't go to a street corner where a camera crew hasn't been. And you're saying, you know, how can I own this city? And, or do I even have to own it? Can I let it own me? So we'll start with JC. I have the made up question I can answer. <laughs> um, I don't think you think that. I think that's too scary of a, um, with this city I don't think, I think what's so amazing about it is you never own it, no one does. It, it, it sort of um, brings you in, lets you be here, call it a home, and then you um, get to be here with everybody else. It's never yours. But it is, um, I think visually, you have to have a point of view. So I think everyone kind of sees the city differently. Um, uh, 
in my in the second film I did in New York, um, we never stepped foot in Manhattan. So Manhattan, it's sort of about this couple that's striving. Um, and I grew up in New Jersey. So I was sort of always looking at these beautiful views across at, at the sort of silver hit city on the hill a little bit. And um, I think the, the character, um, we tried to paint that in. And so they never even touch foot in Manhattan. They never even talk about it. But, um, but the Twin Towers and the rest of the city are sort of always looming behind those characters. And so I think in a, in a cool way, it's like, that was the point of view of, of those exact people as a character. And so it's not like the city becomes a character, but it's like the city is such an integrated part in all of our lives. And so you have to look for the perspective, both visually and from a writing standpoint, um, of what is that person's experience. And, and in this case, it was one of, of wanting to achieve this sort of thing that was um, almost so far away, they couldn't even quite allow themselves to look at it yet. Steve? Yeah. Um, so I've, uh, I've directed two movies in New York and written, I think, one other. So um, uh, in my case, um, it was uh, really that uh, I, I, I'm from Los Angeles, so I'm kind of looking at it as a bit as a, as a foreigner. I didn't grow up here. Um, and uh, uh, I don't have to worry about not going to that same place that everybody else goes to because I don't know what that place is. You know, it, I, I, I'm not interested in, in shooting landmarks, so I don't have to worry about that. Um, uh, Richard Price, who wrote the uh, the Night of, that's his baby. I mean, that, he knows what he, he knows. He should be on this panel. I, I think he wasn't available, or he would have been. Um, and um, and so for the night of, I mean, he 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 wrote New York. He knows New York. For me, I had to learn it. I had to go to these places that that were written where the story took place. It took place, you know, uh, on my first film, Bobby Fisher. I was in the village. In uh, the night of, I was downtown. I was in Queens. I was at Rikers. You would just go to these places, and that would tell you how to shoot them. You know, I mean, it, it, it's a, it sounds simple, but it really is as simple as that. I wasn't trying to fight against anything else. I was just letting those the experience of going to those places tell me what to do. Yeah, well, you say it's simple, but then what happens when you go to two places and they're both good, and you have to choose? I don't think anyone ever gave me a choice of two. <laughs> Because at some point you say, these both work, but this one works better for me. And then that's where your intuitive personality. I think, that, I mean, the one thing that, I, that I've noticed is that I would shoot at some place and I'd think, this is great, this is a beautiful place, I've never seen it before. And then over the next couple of years, I'd see it in, in three <laughs> other places and I realized, oh, the location, you know, it's a friendly place to shoot, the location <laughs> the manager goes there. In fact, where I shot, I, I shot some scenes in, in, uh, in The Night Of, and then when I was watching The Irishman for the first time, there was a scene in the same exact place that I shot. <laughs> Yeah, the, the location managers have a short list. <laughs> well, I always think of New York as the greatest backdrop in the world. And I remember in film school thinking, well, you can point your camera in the same direction as a $100 million production. But well before that, I grew up in Connecticut, and our family would come to New York either to take advantage of crazy Eddie's 
TV sales or good glasses. I remember being outside of Yankee Stadium without my parents for some reason, and I don't know why. And I remember there was a hole in the stadium. I loved baseball at the time, and I went up and looked through, and I was astonished. I saw the field, and I didn't think that would be possible. I thought, well, you'd have the stands in the way, you'd have everything like that. So anyway, years later, coming here for grad school, it took me about a month for the culture shock, but I was always intrigued. Every little thing intrigued me. In the town where I grew up, we had fire hydrants that were all orange. And I said, well, that's, that's the law, so you can spot them. And they're reflective, and it's a safety thing. I saw fire hydrants here that were striped colors, all these different things. Every little thing fascinated me, as did the street lamps. And so oftentimes, foreigners are magnificent cinematographers, in part because they see something anew. But I think this city both embraces you and pushes you around. And it's constantly changing. You walk down the street you haven't been in two months, and something's different. And I think the language of cinema is one that is always moving forward. And I think that oftentimes a good film is life condensed. And that's what New York is to me. And I find it endlessly inspiring. Even if I don't go outside all day, I know something's going outside, going on, and I feel it inside. So um, I don't even know if that answered your question, but. Um, I think, too, in terms of locations, I'd like to think that they choose me or they choose, they choose themselves. Um, and sometimes you know they just speak to you. And um, I don't know, I find uh, standing at a street corner, if you look at two people standing there, they're in two different New Yorks. And so um, it's just a, a remarkable, ever-changing place to me, endlessly inspiring. Cool. <laughs> I don't believe I quite remember the question. Um, but uh, I'm a born and raised New Yorker, and I tell stories about New York, but I, I would love to tell a story on a beach because I think it would be easier to shoot on a beach. <laughs> um, I, my first movie, Obvious Child, was made with little money, and I've gone on to make and shoot other things in New York with more money, but it's still really tough. And the bathrooms are all gross, no matter where you are. Um, and I shot my short film, Obvious Child, that in, um, with actually zero money. And uh, it's about a woman who has an unplanned pregnancy and gets an abortion, and our abortion clinic was my mom's podiatrist's office <laughs> because we didn't have access to, or did I even think of calling Planned Parenthood up and asking if I could shoot in one of their locations. Um, so when I got a, five more dollars to make the feature, um, I finally called Planned Parenthood. And for me, that was the Easter egg, that was the location that I wanted more than anything. I did not want to go back to a foot doctor's office and pretend that it was an abortion clinic. Um, 
And, and luckily, they let us use their New Rochelle location. And, um, you know, I think that with all of our stories, we want that authentic New York shot. And I'm not talking about, you know, the Empire State Building. I'm talking about the shot that makes sense for our story, for our characters, that feels right. And when you don't get it, what do you do? You, you cry and, well, <laughs> maybe just this lady on the panel does, but I'm pretty sure we've all cried when we lost our favorite locations. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> and you yell and scream at your producer and you want, you know, you try to find the money, you beg, you write letters, but at the end of the day, you just find the next location that makes sense. And, and I think for me, it was, um, I never went to a bar thinking that this bar is going to look so different than any other bar. I'm going to shoot in a way, you know. Um, it's about the story. And this is, you know, we're writers. And I think the story is first and foremost. And then the location comes after. But um, Planned Parenthood is very film friendly. <laughs> the, uh, you know, well, there are certain directors you can say they, they own New, a certain kind of New York. You can speak of Woody Allen's New York. And you can speak of Nancy Myers' New York. And we all know what Nancy Myers' New York looks like. <laughs> um, how, how did I address um, those questions? Well, when it came to Los Angeles, I tried to find a way to shoot LA different. And I retreated into um, the Italians. I got an Italian production designer and an Italian composer. And uh, I brought them both over. And I said, I want to see Los Angeles through, you know, your eyes, Nando, and your eyes, Giorgio, and hear it through your eyes, Giorgio. And that's how we got started. And eventually, you know, I found my own Los Angeles, but I wasn't able to find it on my own. And sometimes you will have a similar situation. You'll need someone, you know, to bring over a cinematographer from Eastern Europe and it'll say, well, this is what New York looks like. And, uh, and when I was shooting uh, Light Sleeper, everybody was always so concerned with the skyline of New York. And that, that was a film which had highs and lows. It's about drug dealing, so you're in the lows, but then you're also, the people who are buying the drugs are very, very rich. So it's white drugs for white people. And, uh, and the first the image that sort of hit me, where I realized I could find Los Angeles. Well, the first thing I realized is we should have a garbage strike. Because we had had a garbage strike a year before. I said, let's just get a big truck of garbage bags. And everywhere we shoot, put garbage everywhere. And that will be, certainly will make the film unique. And, uh, and people have said to me afterward, you know, you were so lucky to be shooting during a garbage strike. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> and, uh, and the other one was, looking down at the ground. New Yorkers tend to look down. We don't look up at the skyline. And the entire credit sequence we found a cobblestone street down in the meatpacking district, or what was called the meatpacking district at that time. And the entire is just a, a low angled shot shooting across the cobblestones going along for blocks with various steam passing through and saying, this is New York. This is New York. New York is looking straight down. And then finally, after the credits are over, you pan up and see what city you're in. Mm. And that was another way to find ownership, you know, because you have to fight against 
the cliches because they're almost overpowering. Yeah. And and you you will have the cliches in your film, of course. But if you can own a, a half dozen things, then you can also own the cliches. Right. Yeah. Any comment? <laughs> you can own New York. I can't. Yeah, yeah, so no. <laughs> but no, I mean, I think you're always looking for um, that way to tell that story, and also use what what comes along. I think from a, as a writer, that can be overwhelming um but important to do as a director you do find things um we got like the coldest winter in the world that had happened in new york in like 40 years or something the, the month ahead of shooting um uh, a most violent year and you either going to run away from the snow or at some point you have to embrace it and um those are exciting things and then there you know you can either recreate it like the cartridge strike or take the risk that you're gonna, yeah, yeah. You're gonna go with it. And um, you know, it's like the, the city comes and gets you. But it is, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I love shooting here. I, I mean, I, I, my first film, I would just remember that we, I wanted the skylines to just be looming behind the characters like this sort of monster. They were basically, the people that these characters were gonna screw over. And, um, you know, we shot that whole movie, uh, this is a margin call, and it was all shot on one floor of a skyscraper, um, basically. And uh, I just remember the gift of having the real city outside, you know, different times of day. Um, you know, it was a very monotonous location, but to have the city there kind of reminding the audience that these people were so insular and inside themselves that looking down, you know, they were, they were the equivalent of people looking down, just thinking about their own problems and their own situation. And to be able to have the world kind of spread out over their shoulders um, was, uh, was actually a gift that I didn't know I was gonna get. But it, once I saw it, I was like, let's do more of that. It's a, it's, a, it's, it's um, you know, it's such a, vibrant thing to be shooting. Well, I, I think back to film school and uh, I would, I was walking downtown and I was looking around like, where am I? There were all these old buildings that were abandoned and I thought they were so beautiful. They reminded me of these films that I was watching shot in the streets of Italy and France and other places. And so that area was Tribeca before it was hip, but it was beautiful. And I would shoot there and uh, really I would let these locations talk to me. There's a, so many New Yorks, but I'm sort of interested in the heightened New York or a New York of heightened reality, which is there at all times. And uh, as Paul said earlier, you look at certain filmmakers, Martin Scorsese, Spike Lee, Woody Allen, Jim Jarmusch, all New York, all different New Yorks. Um, but I thought back then that New York belonged to everyone. So I didn't shoot with permits. I just <laughs> went around. And I remember being out in the freezing cold with this big 16 millimeter camera and a huge tripod, no crew, no fear for some reason. And uh, I remember the, I was shooting this thing, this area, which that shot doesn't exist anymore because of development. 
remember the camera froze, and I just remember sitting out there alone downtown, turning it by hand, hoping that the footage would come out. But for me, a lot of times, it's, these things sort of speak to me. And you have your tastes, and you, you feel like you know your story, and it's like, oh, that. Uh, that's, that's what I, I'm looking for. And sometimes I try to, you know, you're the storyteller, but sometimes elements of the story or the location will tell you. And it creates, I think, this really orga organic dynamic where um, the place you really, for me, that's how I get a lot of the DNA into the piece. Um, my first job, legit film job, was I was a PA on American Gangster, and um, it takes place in the 70s, and I remember that the art department would come in and put fake dog shit all over <laughs> this, the, like, you know, the little square area we were shooting in, and I was so confused. I was like, well, they're never going to see it. I'm here so early to watch these people slave over this like combination of like a granola bar <laughs> mixed concoction of fake dog poop and um and I I thought it was ridiculous I really did um but then I saw I finally had the chance where I was able to say yes or no to making fake dog poop and um <laughs> those little moments those they don't just Maybe they don't show up on screen, but I feel like they help the actors, they help the day players, they help everybody when you see a location transformed into you know, your little world that you're trying to create. And um, my second movie was supposed to take place way back in the 90s, and um, New York City just doesn't look the same. There's city bikes, there's Dwayne Reeds, and banks all over the place. And I didn't have the money to make fake dog shit, but what I did is I just shot up all of my, you know, locations, uh, whether it was, um, I, I would shoot slivers or just shoot directly up into the sky so you could see this, the buildings, but nothing, you couldn't see the city bikes around it. Um, but I think that, and I got to shoot in a re like one of the last record stores downtown. It closed three or four days after we shot there called Other Music, and it was the place that I went to in high school. and. Um, it was, uh, you know, the last record store, I feel like, in New York City. And, you know, I feel like your, your Times Square and Taxi Driver no longer exists. And even in Light Sleeper, which, you know, is a different type of the, nine, the 90s New York, no longer exists. Um, and I'm okay with that. You know, I think that's the only way to be. That's not the question. I'm not trying to run for mayor or anything. But... Um, <laughs> I think that um, we as storytellers just have to roll with the changes and fight against them when it makes sense and try to remind ourselves of what old New York looked like. Um, I kind of feel like old New York. I grew up here, and I, um, but I don't feel like I know how to take the train anymore. You know, like I was just telling JC, I don't even know how much fucking... MetroCard is. I just get the monthly passes and I don't even know what one single ride is. And I feel like a trespasser a little bit in this city that I grew up in. Um, and I don't leave my radius in Brooklyn anymore, even though I hear there's a lot going on. Um, 
But I think we just have to continue to uh, to tell our stories the way we want to and shoot New York if we can afford it. Yeah, I, I like to, for the sake of argument, take a counterposing point of view, which is um, don't get suckered by verisimilitude. Uh, verisimilitude is not what it's cracked up to be. People basically believe what they see on screen. And if I took this room and made it all pink with turquoise stripes, and I put it on the screen, you would believe it. You wouldn't, you'd say, wow, where'd they find that room? <laughs> uh, um, so that um, you can make reality, you know. If I wanted to knock that whole wall out and make it a, a, a construction site where they're building a restaurant, I said, that'd be kind of cool. You see them, they're putting in all the stuff. And in this room, they're trying to have a conversation, but the noise keeps interfering. Wouldn't that be cool? And as a writer, of course, you have all of that freedom because you know if you can imagine it, uh, you can pay for it because you're not going to pay for it. <laughs> uh, but. Just having that imagination, even though the director, production manager says, you know, that's crazy, we can't afford to have, be building a restaurant, you have done something to their imagination. And even if they reject you, you've stuck something in their head that this doesn't have to be a conversation in a room just like any other room. And that's part of your task, too, as a writer, to engage their imagination visually, you know, like you have a scene in a restaurant, uh, and they're having a scene in a restaurant, but you, instead you set it in a bank, and it's a bank that's going out of business where they have tables and people eat. Now, your director or your production manager is going to say that's a terrible idea, but you have engaged their mind when they go to look at a restaurant. It looks only like a restaurant. They yeah, say, yeah, yeah it's, it's not as exciting as that. Why do we, in the script, that looked like a bank. <laughs> so you know, don't be afraid to uh, imagine the world, even if you can't afford it, because maybe someone who can will be inspired by your imagination. I mean, for me, I, I mean, as a writer, it's um, if I'm honestly, if I'm writing a story uh, that, you know, where a scene takes place in a restaurant, it's probably a restaurant I've been to just because it's in my head. Or if it's an apartment, it's my first apartment when I got out of college, if it's like supposed to be not a great apartment. And then, you know, and, and even if it all took place, it takes place in New York. Honestly, that's what's in my head the first time through. And then in terms of, uh, you know, actually, you know, starting to look at places, then it becomes, oh, this is what it should look like, you know, and but you don't need that to begin with, or I don't need that to begin with. Um, I, the story is a story and the, and the New York-ness of it will, will come at, at the appropriate time for me. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 but that being said, can I ask you a question? Yeah. When uh, taxi driver, were you sort of living like I was that living, life? I was living in Los Angeles. Okay, perfect, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> I was living in my car in Los Angeles. Yeah, in Chevy Nova. There you go. And uh, and I had uh, uh, everything wrong. The streets were running the wrong way. You know, yeah. Mar <laughs> Marty read the script and he said Sixth Avenue doesn't go south. <laughs> <and north." laughs> I said, okay, well, what are you going to do, Marty? Are you going to okay. change all the signs? <laughs> and uh, uh, and so, but 
I needed a place to take that Los Angeles experience and jump it into a met metropolis. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and also, this idea of making something different. Um, there's a film called Conformist, which I think you all know by Bertolucci. <clears throat> One of the genius things about this film, and even if you've seen it, see it again, with this in mind, is that the film is shot entirely on location. But Scarfiati and Storaro and Bertolucci shoot locations as if they were sets. And so that it has a very odd feel, because you know you're not on stage. You know you're in a real location, but it doesn't look like a real place. And um, that was one of the reasons that was such a groundbreaking film, was that it took this notion of sets versus locations and blurred them. And so if you have a chance to see it again, think, see it with that in mind. Yeah. I will also say that visual effects to do this sort of thing now are insanely affordable. Um, I mean, you can spend more money than you need to and certainly spend a ton, but you can also do small things. I mean, I think to your point, don't let it ruin your imagination on the first pass or Paul's saying it's yeah. not a restaurant there. Um, it is amazing. I mean, I had more money than I had ever had, but we created 1981 New York City um, using a great mix in this, you know, of, of real cars, beautiful, beautiful costumes, wonderful cinematography. But then also it's like unbelievable what you're what you are able to do as long as you try, don't sort of overreach. So make sure you're doing it as a writer from from an educated standpoint. And um, but you can make this room pink, you know, with striped walls and you can make that restaurant there now under construction um, for a couple hundred bucks, you know, literally. And um, it's wonderful to have it built. And I think the the challenge with directing you know visual effects is where do you use it and how but um as a writer that's not really your problem <laughs> and and so um you know i think it doesn't have to be uh um if you use sort of david fincher's philosophy it doesn't have to be you know a dragon flying into this room and knocking the room over to to actually use visual effects in a in a constructive character-driven fascinating way um, and I think as it relates to cities and time and what's happening in them, um, you know, the, the barrier for entry to actually do real storytelling um, using that new tool is, is coming down. And it's, and it's a, an amazing opportunity. We did a subway car where they wouldn't let us um, ruin a period subway car, which I wouldn't have wanted to either. They, had this, they didn't even want us to use fake paint or decals on it. They just did not want this beautiful 60s um, subway car to look like it did in 1981. So the entire chase sequence through a subway car um, was done for, I think, $20,000, which is a lot of money, but on that budget, it really wasn't. And we were able to change this entire subway car to look like a graffiti-strewn mess. And, um, and you also get to choose your own graffiti to put in there, which is really fun. So. <laughs> Yeah, well, like American Gangster, I remember seeing that in the theater. And there was this long shot down uh, uh, Martin Luther King Boulevard. I don't know if it was called that at that time. 
And I, I was looking as far as I could to see, trying to spot one bit of sinus that was wrong. Just w one thing that's out of place. <laughs> but obviously, the graphic artist has spent a lot of time getting every <laughs> little detail right. We also dressed up in 70s garb as PAs. Right. So if we were locking up a street, because you had to lock idea. up like Denzel Washington in Harlem, <laughs> no one, you know, like you have to stand there. And um, I mean, I didn't do much. I was just like, you can go. Um, <laughs> I wasn't cut out to be a PA, but they put us in bell bottoms and hats to That's hide nice. our headpieces. So we were all in the shots just for like, yeah. And there was a day uh, not too long ago when people actually did signage. So if you were shooting at the Acme Factory, Mm -hmm. You'd have to make a sign that said Acme Factory and then put it up with human beings and real man hours. <laughs> Today, you, you, it doesn't even matter if there's a sign there at all. Yeah. You'd you build it in post. Yeah. Still good to put some of those signs up. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, well, eight up 40 minutes. Uh, they asked me if. Um, if uh, there was any appetite for questions from the audience. Should I? Hi, uh, I, I'm from the other side of the world uh, and I moved to, it's me right here. Uh, and I moved to New York like five months ago. Uh, I remember many years ago, I read the stories of Sinbad and I remember the story which said that, you know, there is a great city that's built on the back of a whale and, you know, something happened and the whale shifted and the city... Excuse me, could you just talk a little, project a little more and a little slower? Sure. Uh, so I was saying I moved from the other end of the world five months ago and, you know, many years ago I read the story about Sinbad. Uh, you know, one of, one of the stories said, you know, that there is this great city that's built on the back of a whale and I always sort of had the image of New York as that city, uh, and when I moved in, I was trying to find a house for about two weeks, and you know, I kept thinking of the city as this beast that would not let me enter and live here. I just want to know, you know, we, I've heard so much, and you know, all of you been in New York and written and made films about New York. If there is one standing image or one sort of thing that comes to mind, you know, how do you sort of express New York as as like this entity? Uh, you know, obviously, um, beside you know even before we come to a point of trying to portray that in a film? Like no, I, I think you're looking at it backwards. You decide what you want New York to be, and then you either make it or find it. Uh, it you can never, it's just too big. You know, so when they, Naked City was the, Naked City was the first film that was really shot on location here. Uh, otherwise they would shoot a few exteriors and the rest on, on the lot in Los Angeles. But Naked City was all shot here. And that's a good film to look at because it was probably the first film where they really shot the city. And uh, you see what they chose. And, uh, and I think the same thing for you. You have to say, what city do I want? And the first place, it's going to exist. It's in your head, you know. And then you start walking around, and then you start seeing things. And then, you know, I'm not monopolizing this conversation. <laughs> but um, you know, anyone who has ever written or prepped a film knows that the most creative moments in your life are in the preparation for a script or the preparation for a film. Because every pore in your body is open. 
you are just sucking things in. You go to an art museum and every painting seems to have some purpose. You go to a deli and every color seems to have a purpose. You walk down the street and you say, oh, look at that guy. Go to the subway, look at that guy. Well, they were there all the time. You just didn't see them because your pores were you know, in survival mode. And now they're in expansion mode. And, and that's a great experience. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I love to, uh, if you're writing a script or thinking about filming a script, just walk, walk and walk. And by the time you come back, you will have ideas and you will see things. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's, a, and sometimes even while you're shooting, that happens. You know, and sometimes it's a really late arrival. And I, you know, I worked with the great Conrad Hall uh, on a couple of movies. And, you know, he had this expression, a happy accident. I mean, he lived for these moments. And they were usually something that happened on the set with the lighting that he didn't, he didn't prepare for, or he didn't think of, but it happened. And it could be in a performance. It could be where a light is put. It could be that the location that you thought you were going to uh, shoot at, they took away from you, and so you had to go to the second best place, which turned out to be much better than the first place. So, I mean, embracing the the, the accidents and uh, seizing those accidents, um, to me, it's like the most thrilling part about directing yeah. something, whether it's a performance or a location. Uh, for each of the panelists up here at the very back. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Oh. Uh, for each of the panelists, what time of the day or night do you prefer to write? Huh. Well, it depends how old you are. <laughs> <laughs> I used to, I used to, I started out writing the night shift. Started about 10 Oof. and then finish up about 6 oh. with a kind of rotating co combination of caffeine, nicotine, cocaine, and alcohol. <laughs> and boy, you could write a lot. <laughs> And you know what? Yeah, obviously there were certain typos involved, <laughs> and sometimes the pages got kind of, you know, there's crud on them. But when you got looked at it the next morning, you say, "Yeah, that's pretty, pretty good," you know, because I had this idea that you had to pay these people to come out of your typewriter, and they wouldn't come out unless you gave them drugs, <laughs> and so. If you gave them enough drugs, they would come out and they would play all over your desk. And they would say wonderful things. And all you had to do was just write down what they were saying. And, um, and that was great. But you know, your body starts to give out. And then you have children. And you wake up and you're going to bed one morning at 6 a.m. and the children are getting up for school and you're saying, I don't think I can pull this off much longer. And then I switched to being a day typewriter. And it took almost a full year. I couldn't write in the day. I couldn't know how. I had an office. I'd go there. I'd just sit there all day long. And finally, after about eight months, I started to be able to write during the day. So, you know. And... Uh, <laughs> um, I write during the day, uh, not on drugs. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I save that for night, coming up with the ideas. Uh, no, um, yeah, it's it's horrible. I mean, it's wonderful. It's um, as a as a director, it's my home time. So it is weirdly time when I'm I get to spend months and months and months with my family, you know, on an hour by hour basis. And um, 
So I love it for that. My quality of life just like skyrockets um, as it relates to my family and, and personal life. But the creatively, it's the most difficult. So I, I love directing and it, it's like um, more natural to me, I think. Um, uh, it's social and it's, you know, you move a lot and, um, and writing can, is just this brutal, you know, brutal sort of internal process. So, um, but I think Paul said it best, which is you do sometimes just have to sit there and you kind of keep going back. Um, uh, you know, you keep going back. And then, um, I was, I was having a terrible, I, I was like t on Trump pages for the last two weeks. And I finally gave it up this weekend and like realized I had to finish something. And like after months, I wrote like the final 12 pages of something today in like three hours and it was wham. And, um, you know, but that had taken a month and a half, you know, to build up to that period. Um, so I'm not one of those people that can just kind of chip away out of it every day. It's, it's like, if there's some, if there's a good idea and something to, to write, then it's the easiest thing in the world. And if it's not, I, I often say it sometimes I'm like, don't just force yourself to write something. I mean, it's good to exercise the muscle, but good writing is usually based on really good ideas, really good character, really good trauma, really good things that are happening. And those don't just come from nowhere. <laughs> they have to be worked on. Night or day? Um, first movie, I had a day job. I worked 10 to 6. I clocked in and clocked out. That's why I picked that job. Um, it was for a union. And you got paid every second you worked late. And I worked on nights and weekends on my script. I would edit what my pages on my commute to work on the subway. I was obsessed. It took five years to make it. And I thought that's the only way you can make something. I now have a four-year-old and I, um, you know, I have to, I don't have a, a day job anymore. This is my day job, which is insane. And I pinch myself, but um, I'm still like, well, it feels like nights and weekends. And instead of it being my my day job, it's like working around my, my family life. But I'm in the middle of a rewrite right now, so basically I've just clocked 40 hours of television watching um, <laughs> until I, you know, I'm really at the last under the gun for the deadline, and then I will, um, I don't know, maybe check myself into a coffee shop and uh, just drink a lot of caffeine and never come home. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's hard. It's hard to just sit down and, and be a day writer. It's hard to write when you have a full-time job. It's hard to write when you don't have inspiration or when you do have inspiration, but you um, you just don't have the, the tools um, to sit down and write a script. So you read a book about it and then it's just not, there's no answer when inspiration calls or when the script works finally. Um, but eventually, you know, you have to put your pencil down and show it to somebody. And I think that's where it gets, for me, exciting. Um, and I often use that as inspiration when I know I can talk to somebody about it finally, because I'm no longer locked in my room, in my own head, and um, I get to collaborate. Yeah. Um, I'm absolutely the night shift. And uh, for me, I think, for me and for a lot of writers, I think it's 90% thinking and 10% typing. 
And so in some respects, I feel like, oh, I'm writing all the time, thinking all the time, but I used to feel guilty, like, oh, did I write enough? But I was thinking about it. And I think the job is a bit like a real job and, and homework in that it's due when it's due and it doesn't matter if it's a weekend, you can't just five or six o'clock on Friday just say bye and you know, don't think about it. But with momentum, it gets longer and longer, these sessions, until I start seeing sunrises. And when I start seeing sunrises, I'm usually near the finish line. And uh, that's what I do. Um, just quickly, I mean, every, everybody does it differently, obviously. Yeah. And there's no right, right way. I, and it's changed for me as well, like Paul, you have kids, things change, you know. But um, I find that for me, I have to treat it as a job. I have to go in. It's like nine to five or whatever it's going to be. Even if I'm not writing anything, I have to do it. Because if I don't, I'll give up. And, and if I give up or, uh, you know, then that script never gets written. And it may have been the good one. And a lot has to do with what kind of, whether you actually think you're a real writer. I don't think I'm a real writer. I think a real writer writes every day. Whether it's letters, journals, something. You have to spend at least two hours a day writing. I'm a binge writer, which means I put off writing for as long as I possibly can, <laughs> and then write in a, one grand blast. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but if you are going to be a real writer, like say Richard Price, who we both know, Richard writes every day, and then that and that's what they do. You know, uh, the, they yeah. call it the discipline of the room. Whether you're, you know, Truman Capote, Yukio Mishima, who I made a film <laughs> on. Um, he would always start at midnight, and his nickname in homosexual circles was Cinderella, because no matter what he was doing, however exciting or erotic, he would be checking his watch because he had to be in his room at midnight, yeah. and, um, and and that's accepting the discipline of, of the room, right. and that's what I think real writers understand, and that's why I don't think I'm a real writer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But I, I have to go in and actually put in the time, even if I'm not writing anything. Yeah, I have to. Oh yeah, it's yeah. horrible. I know. <laughs> and it's and it. I mean, you brought up you know American Gangster. That script, the first draft took me 18 months to write, and I didn't write a word for about nine or ten months. Right. I mean, but I went in every day. <laughs> and the you know the the joke around the house is you don't ask. There's one question you don't ask for like about three or four months, and that's how's it going. <laughs> <laughs> So um, I think like a lot of people, I grew up on New York movies, um, wanted to be a New York type of writer. Um, I'm going through a phase right now where I, I grew up in Westchester, so like I'm kind of getting a little sick of New York and want to try somewhere else. Um, so it surprises me when you say you wrote Taxi Driver in LA, because a lot of people here, I think, think that's a quintessential New York movie. Um, so my question is, do you feel like you have to go away from a place to really be able to write about it or appreciate it? No, that film was not about New York. It was uh, about a kid, me. I was living in my car, I was dropping, driving around. I had a, went to the hospital, had a bleeding ulcer. And I realized in the hospital, this is what I was. I was this young man trapped in this yellow coffin uh, floating through the sewers of the city, who looked to be surrounded by people and couldn't get anybody's attention, and who was suffocating in that coffin. He said, that's what I am. I'm a taxi driver. So that was the metaphor. Then when it just came to be, where, where do you set it? Well, what city is most dependent on taxis? 
well, New York. So where do taxis drivers have the most power? In New York. But it's not about New York. Marty made it about New York. <laughs> I don't, by the way, I don't think it hurts to go to another place yeah. to do that. I think it's actually pretty good. Yeah, the first script I ever wrote was about Los Angeles, and I wrote it in Italy. So, you know, it does, it does there's something about... But you knew, you knew Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah, though, I knew right? it, I mean, but I think... you do need to know, if, unless the, the yeah. character is what's starting at first, you definitely want to... I've tried to write things about a place I've never been, and oh, really? it never, it never right. goes well. Well, 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 well. Have you, like, been but, lost at sea? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sort of. Yeah. <laughs> touche, touche. <laughs> That's so interesting, J.D., because, you know, when I began, if I wanted to do a film set in Florence, which I did, I went to Florence. I wanted to do a film in the South. I went to the South. I wanted to do a film in Montreal. I went to Montreal. You don't have to do that anymore. It's all there. <laughs> you can just go... Um, a uh, railroad bar, New Orleans, 1975, mm -hmm. Google Images. Boom. And there it is. You don't have to find it. And um, all of us now as writers uh, find ourselves simultaneously researching uh, while you're writing because it's just easier. When we, oh, you're, you're wondering, well, what kind of hat would she wear? You say, well, it's, it's 1950, she's in St. Louis. Okay, St. Louis, women's hats, 1950. Let's see what it has. <laughs> Whereas before you'd say hat, and now you're actually going to describe what kind of hat. Yeah, exactly. How do you compare writing in New York to other fascinating parts of the world? How do you compare writing and directing and filming in New York compared to other striking parts of the world? Well, they're all, I mean, if the story's good, they're all great, you know. Um, you know, if you're doing the wrong script in New York City, it's the worst city in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you're doing the right script in Des Moines, it's the greatest city in the world. So I, it's very relative. Um, you know, it's certainly not easy to make films in New York. It's, just, it's expensive and it's cumbersome, and you know, it's not nearly as cost-effective as you know, other cities in the world. Uh, and generally, you don't make a film in New York unless you, you don't. Uh, if you have another good option, you you make it somewhere else. Like uh, first reformed, I was uh, I I shot it in New York, but it's supposed to be set up by Albany. But I shot nothing in Manhattan. We couldn't afford it. Manhattan was too expensive. We shot in Staten Island. We shot in Westchester. We shot in uh, Queens. You know, where we could, we could actually move trucks and and do things. But you shoot in Manhattan. It's a, it's brutal. Can you please elaborate on the arch arc of the story? What was the part most difficult for you, and how you see change it changing nowadays? Well, that's a very big question. I can see no one jumping down. <laughs> Um, uh, here's the short answer. I don't believe that screenwriting is a form of writing. I believe it's a form of oral storytelling. It has to do with telling a shaggy dog story. It doesn't have to do with writing down words. And if you can tell a story, and you can tell it for 45 minutes, you've got a movie. And keep telling it until you can look at somebody for 45 minutes and hold their attention. Then, then you'll know. And you can waste your whole life writing, when in fact what you should do be doing is telling. That's just what I believe. 
Very good advice. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Hi. Um, a lot of pressure for the last question. <laughs> I was wondering if you guys had any books that you read that stimulated, you know, good ideas and that created, you know, work that you're really proud of. By books, you mean books about filmmaking or no, books? No, like just books. books. Wow. Well, yeah. <laughs> we, we all have our lists. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and one of the things that uh, is unfortunate about where the education system has been heading is young people are reading less and less. And, um, you know, there's nothing like stirring a, a young person's imagination like a book. Yeah. A film is not the same. And uh, I, I mean, I used to do this more intense, you know, earlier in my career intentionally, and it's a habit I fell out of, and I'm sorry I did. And that was just to read something good. Like I'm writing during the day, and I'm reading something good to remind me what real writing is like, you know, and it's inspiring. And I'm not like borrowing something or, you know, using something. It's just to remind me what good writing is. And I think that's very helpful, you know. Yeah. And often you find. You know, when we used to have bookstores, uh, it was kind of interesting if you were writing and you, you would wander into the bookstore to come up with ideas. I used to live on Riverside Drive and every night I would go over to Shakespeare Company and just wander around and, and think. And all of a sudden you see a title or you read a few things and you say, oh, that's, that's interesting. And, um, and that kind of inspiration is really... Exciting, and uh, and it's another thing that we've lost is this killing time in bookstores. Uh, you know, it used to be if you got to someplace 15 minutes early, there's a bookstore somewhere, and you spent 15 minutes in a bookstore. Now you spend, you go to your phone and play words with friends. But I don't think every great book should be turned into a movie. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think so many people read books and they're like, I can't wait for that to be a movie, and you're just like, it's a great book, leave it. I think mediocre books make amazing movies. (laughs) I agree with reading something great and inspiring. And I would try to read two or three classics for every new thing. Same thing with watching movies. I also found that uh, graphic novels right now, some of the best storytelling and sometimes more cinematic than films in part because between the panels, you have to connect those dots. And the, the movement and the, the dialogue, when there is dialogue, is most closely resembles uh, cinematic writing. But I think with track and field, you know, maybe a sprint is a poem and a marathon might be a book, but the tough race, the killer, is the 800 meter because it's like a, it's a sprint, but it's also kind of long. And uh, I always thought that a novel was harder to write. And this director, he does these giant action movies and everything, and, but they're very smart movies. And uh, he said he thinks a screenplay is harder to write than a novel. I'm not entirely convinced, but he made a good argument because every moment has to propel the thing forward, even when it may seem like nothing is happening. Something's always happening. Yeah, let, uh, let me end this up by just giving some realistic examples. I had the idea for American Jiggle, and we're working on it. And I was in a bookstop, 
and I came across The Red and the Black by Stendhal. And I don't know why. I said, well, you know, that's interesting. This guy, Julian. I should read that book. Now, nothing from Red and the Black, or I think nothing, ever got in that script, but something did. You know? And the same thing when I was writing Taxi Driver, I said I should I need to read two books before I write this script. I need to read Nausea by Sartre and La Trajet by Camus. Um, and that kind of informed is instinctual. You know, no one, nobody tells you you should read Red and the Black. It's just, you're just somewhere and it hits you. Let, let me buy that book and open it up, see what happens. So, There's also um, high art you can look for, but I'm just thinking of an example, <clears throat> excuse me, where I was doing a story on Vince Lombardi and I was looking at all these. Uh, there's so much written about this guy, and, and I would get three or four pages into it, and I'd be like, this is not the kind of stuff that I, that I sort of need to actually understand um, to try and write a movie about this person. And I ended up finding, um, and it, it's actually still in print, but he wrote a coaching manual that was only about 45 pages long, I think. And it basically went through the week of what a football coach, a high school or, or you know, Pop Warner football coach should, should do. And it was basically this sort of, this was late in his life. And, um, you know, I ended up naming the script after the, this book. It's called Run to Daylight because everything you could ever have wanted to know about this guy was sort of contained in what he was trying to teach to, to young amateur coaches, basically. And, and he had sort of infused so much of himself late in his life into this document. And, um, you know, that's sort of the totally opposite. It's not some 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 you know fancy things that he on a higher but it was for for that man or that character it was everything that he all of his knowledge he was sort of putting into this obscure you know sort of document well i think what uh, our yeah so uh thank you very thank much thank you very much thank you been listening to the film at lincoln center podcast our opening music is by steelism you can subscribe on itunes stitcher and spotify film at lincoln center is a nonprofit arts organization based in new york city and supported by individuals just like you for 50 years we've been dedicated to supporting the art and elevating the craft of cinema and enriching film culture through the programming of festivals series retrospectives and new releases the publication of Film Comment, the presentation of podcasts, talks, and special events, the creation and implementation of artist initiatives, and our film and education curriculum and screenings. To learn more about what we do and support Film at Lincoln Center by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org. That's F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org.